chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. If you're not exactly sure where that's at in your Bible, turn between the Old Testament and the New Testament where Malachi and Matthew are together. Turn back Malachi. One book behind that is Zechariah. We're looking at Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, the ten verses that make up this chapter. As you're turning there, we're in this series, Christmas and the Minor Prophets. And as I've said, part of the reason I do these series at this time of the year is to try to show you that that the whole Bible is about Jesus, which means we should be able to get to Christmas, uh, Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. We should be able to get to, to Christmas anywhere in the Bible. But I, I would observe, too, that these passages from, from the Minor Prophets, uh, they're not simply my favorite passages, although they are. I love these passages. Uh, but, but actually, these passages are, are, are part of what the Christian church has preached at this time of the year for really thousands of years. Um, many, many churches in the Christian tradition use what's called lectionaries or, or selected texts that follow the seasons. And these texts from... from uh, Amos and Malachi and, and Micah and Zechariah and Zephaniah, they're actually used this season of the year. Like last week's text from Malachi is used in part because chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way of the Lord, is actually used, as I said, by John the Baptist. And so that's why it's used this time of the year. It's important to, to see that the, the Bible itself gives us this witness uh, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Uh, he is, in fact, God's solution to the real problem that human beings face, which is our sin and our seeing, sinning. And we'll see that again this morning here from Zechariah chapter 3 as he gives us hope, uh, hope for those of us who are dirty. In order to see that, though, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we do bless you for your great kindness to us that you continue week by week to show us Jesus from every part of the Bible. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would accompany your word in such a way that our eyes of faith might be opened and we might see Jesus. Uh, we might love him more today than we did yesterday, more tomorrow than we did today. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask, even as we come to this place in your holy scripture. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways... And keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. 
for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a few years ago, on the same day, I got two letters that were actually quite remarkable. Um, They were from two different prisoners in two different states. But these two letters from two prisoners in two different states actually said, is actually essentially the same story. Both men were in prison. They were serving time in those prisons for sex abuse crimes. While they were in prison, both had professed faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, They'd been brought to see how filthy and dirty their hearts and lives were. And they had turned to Jesus. And they had both reached out to me in response to an article that I had written for Ligonier Ministries' Table Talk magazine. Uh, The article that I had written was on ministering to sexual abuse victims. Um, how to minister them, how to care for them, but also how to minister to their abusers. Now, most of the focus was on those who were the victims of, of sexual abuse and, and on putting legal and ecclesiastical processes in place to deal with these awful situations. But, but these men had responded to a, a, a single paragraph in the midst of all that I had written. And, and the paragraph said this. This is what I wrote. Often... Those who commit messy and heinous sins believe their sins too great to forgive. They need to be reminded that there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. That's a quote from our Confession of Faith, chapter 15, paragraph 4. Such genuine repentance is drawn out by an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. That's also from our Confession of Faith. How great is God's mercy in Christ? So great that he sent his one and only son to die for sinners. And that death is sufficient to cover all our sins, even the most heinous ones. And those two men, one in a prison in Kentucky, one in a prison in Alabama, both who had committed heinous crimes, they both latched on to that paragraph because they knew they were dirty. And they knew that they were, they were serving time for justly for what they had done. But, but this gospel word had given them hope. And they believed it. And they were trusting in Jesus to make them clean. Now, I have to admit, when I received the letters, I was sitting in my office uh, and I sat back in the chair. And on the one hand, I marveled uh, at how God used that, that particular paragraph in those men's lives. But but honestly, the, the bulk of my reflections centered on, do I really believe that? Do I really believe what I wrote for them? I mean, do I really believe that, that God and Jesus Christ can, can wash away even their sin? Do I really believe, do you really believe 
that there's no sin so heinous, so dirty, that God through Jesus can't wash it away, can't make us clean. I think we believe that intellectually. I know I do. But in my heart, in your heart, in our whole soul commitments of what we believe, not just is true up here, but true in here, do we really believe there's no sin so heinous that Jesus can't make us clean? What about pornography use? Adultery? Homosexuality? Unbiblical divorce, abandonment, lying, cheating, fraud, embezzlement, anger, abortion, murder, addiction, gossip and backbiting, slander or libel, bullying, verbal physical, emotional, or even sexual abuse. Some of these things, some of us have committed. We've done these sins. Others have been committed by those whom we love. Still others, we've actually been the victims of. They're all dirty sins. All of them defile. All of them can and, and do bring damnation upon sinners. But which of them are forgivable? Which of them are unforgivable, unpardonable? Is there any sin so great, so heinous, so beyond the pale, so dirty, that Jesus can't wash us clean? And the answer is no. That's what this passage teaches us. This passage holds out hope for you today. If you're here and you know you're dirty, And you know you're filthy and you're saying, is there any hope for me? This passage says, yes, there is hope. God in Jesus Christ, he he makes the dirty clean. That's that's what's going on in this passage. Zechariah's messages here in this book were preached to Israel after they've returned from the exile. For 70 years they had been held captive in Babylon. And now they've come back home. They've been back home in the promised land for about 20 years. And, and Zechariah is working together with Haggai, who, whom we heard from a couple of weeks ago, to, to encourage God's people to rebuild the temple. But, but more, he, he wanted them to see that the glorious restoration that they expected, it was still going to happen. That, that when the Messiah came, he would in fact set things to rights again. And so in order to encourage God's people... Zechariah has this lengthy series of prophecies. This is a 14-chapter book. The first six chapters have eight night visions that are contained in the six chapters. Chapters 7 to 14, a series of prophetic messages that aren't visions, but more like sermons. We're in the section of the night visions. And this chapter, chapter 3, is the fourth of these visions. And the vision introduces us to a key leader among God's people, Joshua, the high priest. Now, now in Israel, as you know, there are two representatives of God's people who stand before God representing the people. One is the king. 
The king of Israel functions as the representative of God's people, but the other person is the high priest. And so Joshua, the high priest, stands here not just for himself. He stands as the representative of God's people. He's, he's, as it were, bringing all of God's people into the heavenly courtroom, into, into the place of God's judgment. He's standing before the Lord's representative, the angel of the Lord, as the representative of God's people. And so Joshua, as our representative, not just of Israel, but of you and me, Joshua shows us our problem. And actually, our problem is twofold. Uh, the first part of our problem is, is that you and I, we have an accuser. That, that's what you see in this passage in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you have the picture, right? Picture a courtroom. The angel of the Lord as God's representative is sitting in the bench. Joshua is standing before the bench and standing at his right hand is the prosecuting attorney, Satan himself. Satan's name means adversary. Here he's an adversary who functions as an accuser. And he's accusing Joshua, but he's not simply accusing Joshua. He's accusing Joshua as the representative of God's people, which means he's accusing you. And he's accusing me. You see, the adversary, Satan, he continues to accuse. And you can imagine yourself this morning standing in that heavenly courtroom before the Lord's representative. And you can almost hear, if you listen carefully, the enemy's accusations right now. He says, you see that man? You see that woman, God. What, what heinous things he has done. What heinous things she has done. That man, when, when his wife was asleep, had, he snuck into the other room and he was on the computer in a sex chat room while his wife was asleep. She didn't even know it. That woman, do you see her? She took the company credit card and was running up thousands of dollars of illegitimate expenses, charging personal things to the company card and, and trusting they would never find out. You see that man? He, he verbally abused his wife, called her names that he never thought he would call her on the day they were married. You see that woman, sir, she's been working behind the scenes to try to get her boss fired, sowing all kinds of rumors, all kinds of untrue things, slandering him behind his back so she could have his job. Your Honor, there is only one thing that your law demands as this man or this woman stands before you. You must, in fact, rule guilty, condemned damnation. That's the accuser's voice. Even now, he, he's, he's, he's lodging his accusations against you, just as he did to Joshua in the scene before us. But there's another part of our problem. It's not simply that we have an accuser. It's that many of his accusations are in fact accurate. They're accurate. He's not lying. He's telling the truth, isn't he? It's pictured in our scene by, by Joshua's clothes. If you look at verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel, covered, or excuse me, clothed with filthy garments. <clears throat> he's, he's wearing the clothes of the high priest, but we're actually shocked by what we see because that word filthy there. It, it actually connotes uh, something more than merely soiled. No, 
that word in Hebrew is related to other words that, that have to do with human excrement or with vomit. In other words, Joshua is completely filthy. His, his clothes are completely filthy. They're disgustingly dirty. And his clothes were meant to represent what was actually going on in our hearts. It's out of our hearts, after all, that our mouths speak. It's out of our hearts, after all, that we act. When we confess our sins regarding thoughts, words, and deeds, our words are problematic, our deeds are troubling, but it's our hearts that are dirty and filthy. Friends, that's our problem. That's your problem, and that's my problem. Our problem isn't that we are good people, fundamentally good people with hearts of gold who make mistakes every now and then. No, our, our problem is that we are actually really filthy, disgusting, dirty. And like the band 21 Pilots, we need to be asking, who will save my dirty, heavy soul? My dirty, heavy soul. So Satan's accusations, actually, they have the ring of truth. He might not be able to land all of his blows, but he knows and we know that our hearts are in fact dirty and our lives are in fact filthy. We cannot be in the presence of a holy God. We in fact do deserve judgment. We do deserve condemnation. We do deserve damnation. But what does God do in this scene? What, what's his solution to our problem? Well, again, his, his solution is twofold. First, he rebukes Satan, and he does so based on his election, on his choice of his people. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, in the context, God's rebuke of Satan actually focuses on his choice or his election of Jerusalem as his city. And by extension then, not just of the city, but of the people in the city. He's claimed his covenant people for himself, and God will not forsake his own. He will, in fact, rescue them. He'll snatch them from his condemnation, snatch them from his judicial wrath, snatch them from the fire like brands, like sticks out of a burning fire. He will rescue, but he does something more. He doesn't simply rebuke the, ac the accuser based on his own choice of his people, but he actually makes the dirty clean. And he does so through his forgiveness. Look at verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. What does God do? He takes those filthy, vomitous, disgusting, dirty clothes that represent not just Joshua's heart, but your heart and my heart. And he takes them off and he says, look, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I've separated your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. If you were to draw a line that represented the east out to infinity and out to west to infinity, that's how far I've removed your iniquity, your dirty, stinking sin away from you. I have forgiven you. I've pardoned you. Now think about that for a minute. Think about that for you. 
No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've thought, no matter how filthy and dirty you are, no matter how much guilt and shame you carry around like a weight upon your shoulders, God can take that away. God can take those clothes off of you. He can separate your iniquities from you. And he can do that by a sovereign act of his grace. But he doesn't simply pardon. Oh, that's, that's a great part of what God does for us. That's a great part of his solution is that he pardons our iniquities and he removes our iniquities from us. But he does more than that, doesn't he, in this scene? He goes on and he says, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I'll put clean clothes on you. And, and Zechariah is so excited. He, he raises his hand and says, oh, and, and don't forget the turban. Don't forget the priest's hat. Put the turban on him. And what do they do? So they put a clean turban on his head. And they clothe him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. What, what are those garments? Those garments are, represent God's own righteous status. His purity, his holiness, his justice, his joy that, that are rightly his by virtue of his own character as well as in actions. And he imputes that to us. And he takes those pure clothes, those robes of righteousness, and he puts them around us. He takes off the old clothes, the old dirty self, the old guilt and shame. It's gone forever. And he, he clothes you again with his own status so that when he looks at you, he doesn't see you as dirty. He sees you as clean, as clean and beautiful in his sight. Listen, there's good news for you today. If you're here today and you feel utterly dirty and ashamed, if you run to Jesus Christ, he says, I make the dirty clean. That's what I do. And yet that's not all he does. No, he does far more. Not only are the dirty made clean, but the, the clean, they're given gifts. That's, it's grace upon grace. Joshua is given two gifts in particular. And, and as the representative of God's people, that means that you and I, we've been given these gifts as well. Among these gifts, authority. Look at what the angel says in verse 6. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. So Joshua is the high priest. He's promised authority to rule in God's house. That was the responsibility of the high priest. Once the temple would be rebuilt, Joshua was commanded to rule in the house, to have authority over the temple, to maintain its purity to decide the cases of God's people, to teach them God's way, and of course, to continue to offer the sacrifices for God's people. But friend, how much more has God given you that very same gift? Do you remember what Jesus said after he, he was raised from the dead, right before he was ascended? What did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples. Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What authority do you have to go and make disciples? On whose authority do you have to tell your children anything about Jesus? On what authority do you have when you're sitting at the Christmas table talking to your unbelieving uncle or aunt? 
What, what, what authority do you have to tell them about Jesus? Jesus gave you authority. He gave you authority of a priest in God's house to, to witness to him and to declare the good news of Jesus Christ because as the one who has all authority, he's given you authority to go and make disciples. What a great gift this is. That the resurrected Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, has given this gift of authority over his world to his people to teach and to serve and to lead and, and to preach and to bring to whole flourishing. But not just authority. The other gift is access. God goes on to say to Joshua and by extension to his people, and I will give you the right of access, verse 7, among those who are standing here. Where's here? I mean, God says, I give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Where's here? Well, that's God's courtroom. The heavenly courtroom where God has his throne. This heavenly courtroom, which before was a courtroom that would bring judgment and condemnation and damnation upon dirty Joshua and dirty Sean and dirty you. But because God has taken away our sin and pardoned them and clothed us with his own righteousness, now he's given us access into that same throne room. And what is that throne room now? It's a place of grace. That's what the writer of the Hebrews perhaps was reflecting upon when he said, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you need help this morning? You have access into the very throne room of God where you will receive a welcome unlike ever any that you've ever experienced because the God of heaven bids you to come. If you had come before when you were dirty, there would have been no way of entrance. But now you've actually been invited to come. Before you would have known only accusation, only condemnation, but now you would know welcome. You have a right to be there. Before, you would have actually had those doors shut, but now they're flung wide open. Don't you see what a great gift this is? You who have been made clean by the very blood of Jesus, you've been given two great gifts. Authority. Authority in God's world as a priest in his kingdom to witness to him and access into the throne room of God where you might be able to find help in your time of need. Friend, it's too much. It's all too much. It's too good to be true, isn't it? I mean, you know you. You live with you. You know how dirty and filthy you are. How could we possibly hope for all of this? Well, there's hope for the dirty because of the Christ who comes. The Christ who came and the one who's coming again. Of course, that takes us right to the heart of the Christmas story, doesn't it? And in fact, that, that's exactly what God wants us to do with this passage. There's a couple of things here that are a little enigmatic if you're not exactly sure what's going on. Verses 8 and 9 especially. Look at verse 8. God says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. That's a little bit awkward. The NIV, I think, helps it get a little bit clearer. The NIV there, if you have it, you see it. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. In other words, this whole night vision for Joshua certainly has importance to Joshua when he hears it, certainly has importance for, for God's people in 520 B.C., 
But God says explicitly, all of this is a sign of things to come. So that means then, to what is it pointing? If this is a sign of things to come, to whom is all of this pointing? Well, he goes on, doesn't he? They are men who are a sign, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Well, who's the branch? Well, God's people certainly knew. They knew Isaiah 4. They they knew Isaiah 11. They knew Jeremiah 23. They knew Jeremiah 33. They knew the meaning of low and air arose, air blooming. They knew what that was pointing to. They knew that the branch was the Messiah. The branch was the promised king in the line of David, which means all of this points forward to Christmas. All of this points forward to the Christ who comes, this one who comes to make the dirty clean, the Christ who gives glorious gifts. How does he do it? He does this by removing sin. That's that's verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, uh, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. Now that's super enigmatic. You're like, what's that about? Well, in order to get what's going on here, you have to be able to go back to Exodus chapter 28. If you were to read that this afternoon, you'd find Exodus 28 and 29 give instructions for clothing and ordaining the high priest. Chapter 28 talks about all the different clothes and accoutrements that the high priest has. One of the things he has is an ephod. And on that ephod, there are 12 stones. And on each of the stones is written one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he was to bear that ephod with those 12 stones all over his heart. And he would carry those tribes on his heart into the Holy of Holies, where he made atonement for them. And in fact, Exodus 28 makes that explicit. In Exodus 28, verse 38, God says, And he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, and so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. But there's one other thing. The, the, the high priest actually has as part of his gear on his turban a little plate. And on that plate was engraved a name, holy to the Lord. And so the image of the stones and the image of the engraving, they're brought together in this image that, that Zechariah makes reference to in chapter 3, verse 9. The picture here is of a beautiful stone that has seven facets or seven eyes. It's a completely perfect stone and and this stone has an inscription on it just like the gold plate on the high priest's turban and this stone that's connected with the priest and the engraving that's connected with the priest points forward to this messiah who's going to do something what is he going to do i will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day you see this branch is in fact a priest. And this branch himself is going to bear God's people perfectly on his heart. And he is going to be the one who is, in fact, holy to the Lord. And he is, in fact, going to be the one who takes away the sin of his people in one day. Friend, isn't that what Jesus came to do? Isn't that what the Christmas story is about? What is it that the angel said to Matthew? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said of himself, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul, reflecting upon what Jesus had done, he said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the writer to the Hebrews said, when this priest, namely Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Don't you see? What's the point of Christmas? That Jesus was born, yes, but he was born to die. That Jesus was born in order to shed his blood. And his blood is the means of satisfying, yes, the justice of God, but his blood is the means of cleansing you from your sin. For without the shedding of blood, the writer of Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus, the great priest, the perfect priest bearing you on his heart, written on himself because of his person, holy to the Lord, he died to take away iniquity in a single day. That's how Jesus is able to make you clean. He was born for this purpose, to make the dirty clean, to make you clean. And yet that's not all he does, is it? He not only makes individuals clean, He's going to make this world clean. He's going to make everything new. He's going to restore creation. You can't skip over verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. In other words, the whole world's going to be set to rights again. Individuals made new in a world made new. No longer will we be exiled from our true home. No longer will there be dirtiness and filthiness. No longer will we be fighting against God's way and God's world. No, no longer will we be, there will be thorns and thistles infesting the ground. No, God's new people will invite each other to enjoy God's renewed world. Won't that be glorious? That the tidings of comfort and joy of which we sing won't simply be tidings. They'll be our life 24-7, 365. And in fact, time will be no more because we will be so taken up with the sight of glory, of utter light and beauty and purity as we gaze with, at our Savior and as we enjoy one another forever. And how does that happen? It happens because the Christ comes, because the branch comes, because Jesus came and he's coming again. And he can make you and me dirty as we are he can make us clean. He can make us clean so that when the enemy accuses us, we can take them by the hand right to the cross of Jesus and say, Satan, stop it. Stop it. Jesus makes the dirty clean. And so this Christmas, embrace this hope. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within I upward look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's your hope this morning. It's true. It's all true. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us to believe not only that it's true, 
but it's also real and for us. That this cleansing, no matter what we've done, how heinous it is, this cleansing's for us. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so, Lord, grant us grace this day to rejoice. To rejoice because, Jesus, you came, you were born to save, to rescue us from, from ourselves, yes, but also to rescue us from your own just condemnation of us. So, Lord, please stir our hearts with joy this morning. Help us to rejoice in you, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's turn together to number 207. Uh, a, a Christmas hymn that's fitting for the cl close of this message, especially the last line. He calls you one and all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Let's stand together to sing number 207.